Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. With five and a half years of experience working remotely in the technology space and 10 plus years working with customer facing teams across multiple industries, John has stepped into the role of Chief Operating Officer at Kinsta, where his responsibilities include hiring and onboarding as Kinsta has grown from a team of 20 to a team of more than 120. Well, he didn't write his first line of HTML until he was 25 years old. Within three years, John was working full time in technology, first as a freelance writer for technical websites and eventually as a support engineer at Kinsta. From there, he moved into management roles, initially as the chief customer officer and now as COO. When he's not driving company-wide strategy and finding ways to help our distributed team stay connected, John can be found in rural Georgia with his wife and five kids. So John, welcome to the Second Command Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, looking forward to it. So um, I've got a couple of questions really that I want to jump into pretty quickly, but why don't you just quickly tell us what Kinsta is so we've got some background on the the type of company that you're running to. Sure, absolutely. So Kinsta is a managed WordPress hosting provider, which means we provide uh, managed web hosting that is specifically geared uh, for hosting WordPress websites. Uh, WordPress being a very flexible um, content management system that can be used for for everything from business websites to e-commerce to really just about any type of uh, web presence. So uh, Kinsta was founded in 2013. First is really just as a concept without a um, a whole lot of um, customer base or anything behind it. And it was a um, bootstrapped company in that there were four founders and they founded the company uh, literally out of one of the founders' apartment and uh, with absolutely no investment and and they've managed to to maintain that model to this day so um, we continue to be a bootstrapped uh, company to this day we've never taken any outside investment owned by the original founders and uh, pushing forward with a focus on uh, performance uh, security and providing the best support in the industry very cool interesting i i coached a company years ago probably 10 years ago now um, a company called media temple and, oh sure, and they were a big uh, WordPress hosting company. Yeah, that was yeah, yeah. They're they're still definitely out there. Yeah, are they? yeah. I, I coached Damien Selforce and his leadership team about ten years ago when they wanted to um, build the company and get ready to to exit the company. And I worked with them on culture and operations and execution. And WordPress was their their kind of focus as well. How how did you guys decide to focus on WordPress as a I guess a funnel for leads or as your your, your key vertical to go after? Sure. Yeah, so the founders, the four founders who created Kinsta, before they created Kinsta, actually had a uh, website development and internet marketing agency. And they were building WordPress websites for customers and doing marketing for customers who primarily were using WordPress. And, and a problem they consistently ran into five years ago was that they, there wasn't a host out there that offered the right combination of support, performance, pricing, they, they couldn't really find what they wanted. And so they would, they'd build a site for a customer and the customer would go, where should we put this site? And they didn't have a good answer. And so they decided to pivot and say, well, let's, let's be the answer for those customers. And, uh, and that ended up taking off and they wound down the, the website development and marketing business and focused full-time on Kinsta really, really pretty quickly. It was, I think about a six to a 12 month transition and they had shut down the marketing and development side to focus full-time on hosting. 
Very cool. Now you said, um, or in your bio, it mentioned that you live in rural Georgia. Is the company based in Georgia as well, or where are you based? Or are you no, remote? So yeah, we are remote. Uh, as many technology companies, that was part of the strategy from the start. So the founders are out of Europe, but by the time they got to hmm. team member number, I don't know, seven or eight, they had ventured into remote territory. Uh, and um, at this point, we're about 60% remote. Very cool. Whereabouts in Europe are they based? So we have um, kind of hubs in the UK and in Hungary. And then we have folks working out of their home out of a, a number of different countries in Europe. But really, the two hubs are Hungary and the UK. That's cool. And now do you go after the European market as a strong customer base? Or do you go after the US market? What's your, where's your, your focus? Sure. So we actually have income really coming from all around the world, you know, as probably any, um, you know, online service type company does. Uh, our customer base is weighted strongly in English speaking countries. Okay. And so that means we have a very strong customer base in the United States, Canada, also in Europe. Um, you know, English is almost a second language in most European countries. And so we have, we have a lot of attraction uh, there and then also down in, in Australia. And we have customers in plenty of other places as well, but um, really uh, Europe and the U.S. have been um, the primary places where the largest percentage of our customer base comes from. Having said that, one of the things that makes Kinsta unique is from, the, from early on, we adopted a, a multilingual strategy where yeah. our website, from the time we were a company of, you know, I don't know, 20 people, our, our website was available in like 10 languages. Yeah. So, it, it's yeah. pretty amazing to me. I mean, being I'm Canadian, but live in the US and it's amazing to me watching how many companies don't go after the European market um, right. when yeah. there's just, there is yeah. so much money over there. I coached a company called Digistore, which is kind of like the click, the click bank of Europe. And they're, um, you know, they're based in Austria. They've got teams in, in Bulgaria mm. and they're crushing it over in Europe and they yeah. don't care about the yeah. US market at all. They're like, you know, really keep, keep the, yeah. Oh yeah, keep the US market. They're doing, and I'm not going to give you their numbers, but they're approaching nine figures and um, they're, they're absolutely crushing it over there because they just yeah. focused on a market that nobody's looking at. Right, right. Yeah, and that has been a little bit of, of Kinsta's approach as well. I mean, um, you know, not that I necessarily want to give anybody ideas, but uh, if you look at a lot of our competitors, they, they simply do not match our mm -hmm. multilingual approach. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, looking at Europe, um, we have our website and our control panel translated into French, uh, Italian, Dutch, uh, German. And so we actually, not only are we translating our website, but we're even allowing our customers to interact with us in That's great. multiple different languages. Is your support team based in Holland? Uh, no, <laughs> our support team, our support team is distributed. Yeah. We got folks in the UK, we got folks in uh, Hungary, we got folks in the US, and then we have some remote folks just about anywhere. I've heard some recently, some the, the, the Dutch are so strong because most of them speak seven languages. Oh, and yeah. I don't know why the Dutch speak so many more than the rest of the Europeans. Most Europeans speak like three and the Dutch sure. speak like seven for some reason. So I sure. Yeah. Suppose. No, I, I think that's actually, I think that's accurate. I, as, as now that you mention that, uh, somebody that we have from the Netherlands, I believe he does speak four or five languages. It's weird. That's, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> right. I can barely speak English. Right. I know. <laughs> for sure. For real. So talk to me a little bit about that. The complexity of running a multi-language sure. business and a multi-continent yeah. business and a multi-country business. What are some of the complexities there and, and what have you had to learn? Sure. So um, I'll start with the multilingual piece because that's something that my eyes were open to uh, really just in the last six months or so here. We have somebody uh, on our team who uh, is in charge of what we call global expansion. 
And, and one of the touch points has always been, how does global expansion interact with sales and marketing? We sat down the other day and I asked him to write out how translations work. And 10 pages later, he had written out a document that explained just the complexities of how content goes from being written in one language, usually English, though not always, to being pushed into these different systems where it's translated. And then we have to check it with subject matter experts and publish it in the different locations. And it's, it's a, it's a very time consuming and yeah. uh, very expensive, yeah. frankly, process. Yeah. Uh, now we, we think it's worth it, but, but it's a, it's a significant challenge. So that, that's kind of a logistical internal operations challenge. Um, we're constantly scanning the horizon for changes in international markets that could affect us because we do have customers in a lot of different places and um, we're constantly on, on the lookout. Uh, there are a lot of places, for example, if you think about the European Union where their value added tax, it doesn't matter where your company is based, you got to charge that value added tax and remit it. Uh, that we're, we're constantly having to keep an eye on what are our revenues coming from different countries and different regions and, and how do we identify the points at which we either have a presence in there and that, that creates some liability for us or we've reached certain um, levels of activity that, that cause us to need to start reporting in those jurisdictions. So it, it's, really, um, it's really a constant dialogue with, with a significant number of accountants and lawyers. Uh, and, and thankfully, that, that used to be my job. And thankfully, we hired a, a, a full-time CFO back in February. And I was, I was more than happy uh, to hand that responsibility over to him. It's interesting you just mentioned that, that you, know, you used to have to oversee finance. And now you've been able to hire someone to come in and run that. Harvard wrote an article, Harvard Business Review wrote an article about 15 years ago called The Misunderstood Role of the COO. And it, yeah. it's, it's so different in every organization. In some cases, they run IT and some they don't. Some they run finance and they don't. What, what falls under you? Good grief. Um, so today, uh, today, my scope is, what's the right way to describe it? It's, it's limited, but it's very broad. So, so I, I manage uh, HR directly. Uh, but then aside from that, I'm in charge of um, our OKR process and our value process, which, which applies across the company. And so that's why I say it's limited but broad because it's it's I've been able to really drill down and be focused on HR and then uh, OKRs and values um, here just in the last few months once we hired our CFO. Um, but it's still very broad in that it affects the entire company. Not historically, I mean I've I've managed almost every almost department every. at the yeah almost everything at some time or another. So walk me through what the mindset is then of a leader who's been in an organization for four plus years and you're starting to divest yourself of some areas of the business you used to run. How do you rationalize, like I hear this on coaching calls with clients, like, well, what am I supposed to do now? You know, yeah. if, if I oh, yeah. hire, so, so how do you get around that? What do you, what do you focus on? What's your mind? Uh, how do you manage your mind on that, et cetera? Sure. Right. I, no, I mean, that's a great question. And, and I, I, I wish I could say that I have like the silver bullet that solves that problem. I mean, I, so I, I would say that I personally, I've approached it in a couple of different ways. Um, so the first thing is that every time that I have divested myself of some responsibility, I've tried to hand it to somebody who I thought would do a better job than I was doing. So I have, I have three examples there. Um, I was managing sales and all of our customer facing functions. And I brought in a guy, Tom, who had been at one of our competitors, Site5, which had been a very similarly structured company and had been in the industry for 10 plus years. He was actually the COO at a company called Site5 for a while. 
And so Tom, you know, somebody who's been in the industry longer than I have, has more professional experience. I brought him in and, and over a pretty short period of time, I was able to hand those functions off to him and just feel really confident that this guy's got it. And then I did the same thing when we brought in our CFO. I mean, our CFO has 23 years of experience. He's worked for Ernst & Young. He's worked for KPMG. He's actually a tax attorney. So I was like, I mean, this guy, he's done mergers and acquisitions internationally. It was just like the degree to which he is more qualified to be the CFO of this company than I am really can't be overstated. It was, it was wonderful to hand him those responsibilities. And then when, when we... More recently, I took a step back even from HR where I was directly managing our HR personnel. We hired a head of HR and, right. and allowed her to take over that day-to-day. -day. So, and she came in with about 10 years of experience managing HR teams. So I'd say the first thing that I've done to try and manage my removal from those teams is to hand responsibility to folks who I felt like had were more qualified really, yeah. to do those things than I was. And so I could step back into more of a coaching role because I know the history of the company, because I understand the culture and, and I understand the relationships internally, and I could be effectively a coach to them, uh, but really let them run with that function. And, and you've done it right, where so many leaders hire people that they can then manage and oversee. Right. You've in many ways hired leaders that can totally run their own functional areas better than you ever could. And now you get to kind of be the storyteller and help remove obstacles exactly and right. coach them. But so how, so, so how did you make that mental leap that you were still safe in your role? Right. No, I, I think it, it, there has to be a lot of trust with the individuals that are still managing you. And are, you know, as in the case of a CEO, you're reporting to the CEO, correct? And, and so there has to be a degree of trust with that CEO. And, and I think, honestly, um, I, I have to continue to prove that I can bring value to the organization. Sure. So you find and, it. Yeah, exactly. And so, and so it took two forms. One was uh, there were things that our CEO was asking me to do about uh, going out and understanding the industry and, and looking for specific opportunities. And I was sitting here going, I, I simply, I can't, I, I'm, I'm dealing, I'm literally dealing with accounts payable. Like I'm, we have these invoices coming in and I'm making sure they're getting paid. I, I can't spend, you know, three days researching the industry. I just, I have to make sure our invoices get paid. And no, nor should you be doing accounts payable at some point. Right. That's a $25 an hour job. That's right. Exactly. I shouldn't be doing this anymore. Exactly. Right. So, so um, a part of it was, the value was there before we made the transition where we didn't hire those people until our CEO was going, John, I need you to go work on other things. How do I get you to the point where you can do that? And so that, that was step one is, is that I wasn't making these decisions to divest myself of responsibilities. These weren't decisions I was making by myself. They were made in um, consultation uh, with, with our CEO and he was really the one encouraging me to do those things. The second thing is, especially with this most recent transition, uh, is it, I sat back and I said, how can I best help this company? Uh. Uh, so, so when, particularly we, we hired David, our, our CFO, and then shortly after we hired Zane, our head of HR. And I, I really divested myself of almost all routine day-to-day -day responsibilities. And, and that's when I, I really did step back and go, what do I have that I bring to this company that's still unique? And, and what I felt that I brought is that I, I was probably about the 15th person yeah. uh, to join the company. And I, I've, seen, I've seen support, I've seen sales, I've seen client care, uh, I've seen accounts payable, finance, accounting, I've dealt with tax, I've dealt with legal. 
So I've, I've seen all of our customer facing functions, all of our back office type functions, and I understand what makes Kinsta work. And so I was, my, my approach was then, how can I impart that knowledge? And the answer to me came actually through another coworker who introduced me to OKRs, which I were on my radar just very vaguely, but I, I read, uh, uh, measure what matters the you know kind of the official okr bible and i was like this is this for me to bring this to the company as we're going from this transition from being a relatively small company to a somewhat larger company and and to be that okr shepherd to be that person that all these conversations are bouncing off of that's coordinating this effort is is a very natural transition and it allows me to bring to bear my understanding of the relationships in the company what makes kinsta unique and and how we got where we are and so uh, it was a combination then of, you know, Mark saying, I need you to be free to focus on these things. And then me stepping back and going, what can I bring to the company because of how I came into my role? What can I contribute? What's the most effective thing I can contribute? And I shared OKRs with Mark. And it took a couple of rounds because, you know, Mark's not a, a traditional, um, you know, let's go see what another business is doing and apply it. He, he's always taken the approach of let's do what makes the most sense for us. So, so you got to sell Mark. Uh, before you're gonna before you're gonna do something like OKRs and and so it took a couple of conversations and explaining how this would work and then he was fully on board and said yeah that's a that's a good way for you to continue to steer the ship from from sort of the back of the ship by by helping everybody else put those goals out in front of them I love that you actually identified the two the two kind of core overarching themes where one was really strong trust with the CEO that gave you the confidence right. to divest those areas. And then the second was, you know, spending time searching for the opportunities that would bring the most value to the company. Yeah. I think that's what, what made the transition clear. But I think the trust one is probably the, the key because Absolutely. You know, I, I even hear it from CEOs. They'll be like, well, if I hire all these people, what am I to do? Well, first thing, nobody's going to fire you, the CEO, right. you own the company. So you're good, <laughs> right, right? Yeah, right. But yeah. for the COO, it's always then shit. What, like, what am I going to really be doing? Right. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. So talk about the trust of the CEO. One of the roles I've always believed of the COO is really to be the person that tells the CEO that they're kind of wearing no clothes, right? That it's yeah, the emperor's sure. new suit, right? Or the, to be the one to tell them the problems and, and mm-hmm. um, you know, have the counter arguments. How do you do that safely with the CEO so that you don't get their back up? And how sure. do you, what do you do to make sure that you keep the trust high over the years? Sure. So, uh, you know, I think just at a personal level, Mark and I get along really well. Uh, and that's true of, of myself with all of our executives. But um, from Mark and I, uh, when, when I first came to work with Kinsta, he was in Budapest and I was in the United States. And so we didn't actually meet until I was actually managing support. So I started in support. And then by the time we met face to face, I was actually managing support. Um, but we, we just hit it off. So on a personal level, we just we, we clicked. And I think a second thing that really has helped is that we just have a very similar philosophy about how the business should operate, what the priority should be. And so we, we find ourselves on a regular basis arriving at similar conclusions for the same reasons, even if we don't discuss them. And so, and so there's, been, there's been a good degree of alignment in that, and I think that's contributed to that trust. I think the other part, you, you hit on something there when you mentioned that the COO is in some degree, the person who lets the CEO know that he's the emperor with no clothes. Actually, Mark mentioned that recently in a, a chat I was having with him. He said, you're one of the only people who will tell me when you disagree, right? Yeah. And, so, and so that is, I think they that is one of those. That. They love that, exactly. they need, right? Yeah. They need that from us. 
Yeah. Yeah. He said there's only two other people and he mentioned who they were who will get into a conversation and tell him they disagree. But I think the third piece there is I don't ever push him in that way in public. I always do that either on a private call or a private note or something. I, I never, I'm not going to get in public and question a decision that he's made or his approach or whatever. We'll talk about that privately. And then I'll, I'll allow him to steer the ship. So there, but then, you know, I, I don't want to get into specifics because it will, um, it will eliminate the benefit of these things. There have been plenty of times where I wrote something up or I had an idea or whatever, and Mark really liked it. And he's like, I think this should come from me. And so I'm like, run with it, right? And so nobody's the wiser. You know, we just run with it. That's his idea. Um, and I, I think that that's been, that's been a critical part is, is where there's, there's kind of no ego. I try to approach my job with, with no ego, recognizing that my success in that role is really at the privilege of the CEO. And my success is going to be him being happy with how I've performed. Yeah. And our, our role as the second in command is to shine the spotlight on the CEO to make them look good at all times. And then their job behind the scenes is to shine the spotlight on us with the team because we're always rolling out the hard decisions and the rough ones. Their job is to make us look good, right? Sure. That's yeah. right. It's a, it's a very, <laughs> that's right. It's kind of a, it's a very similar to a traditional family with a mom and dad and that yeah. traditional, it's like, look, I know your mom's being a bitch, but you know, she just right. cares about you guys and she's working hard and she's just having a tough day, but she, you know, you guys screwed up. Uh -huh. You know, you never, right. you never criticize each other, but, but you gotta, Absolutely. you gotta have each other's back. And then behind the scenes, you're like, dude, you can't do this. <laughs> That's like, right. That's right. This was a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> what <laughs> right. the fuck are you doing? Right. Exactly. Um, t talk to me a little bit about the, um, the culture projects that you mentioned behind, yeah. before we got, we hopped on the call, you said something about culture projects. Can you walk us through that? Absolutely. So that's something we've launched relatively recently. And this has been a part of my transition out of uh, being involved in day-to-day -day stuff to being able to be a little bit more strategic and thoughtful about what I work on. We are a distributed team. And one of the biggest challenges as a distributed team is building connections between team members. Uh, and, and I'm talking about non-work connections, right? So these are just the, the um, more relaxed friendships that are happening. And so one of the things that we so we had a couple of team members join us in a row that both of them brought ideas to the table. One of them was like, I want to do a, a step challenge. One of them, I want to do a step challenge where we invite people in the company to measure their steps every day and we'll see how everybody's doing. And at the end of the month, we can do something. And these are not work related. How can operations or HR, how can they support these ideas um, and, and give them some backing without taking them over. Mm. Because initially there was the thought, well, what if HR just kind of runs with runs these ideas? And yeah. I was like, they're not gonna work. Like we, we need somebody who really loves the idea, who wants to run with it. And so we came up with what we call the Kinsta Culture Projects. And what it is, is somebody, you know, has, somebody has an idea of something they wanna do. Uh, they just talk to HR uh, and as well as their manager to make sure there are no red flags with whatever it is that they wanna do. And then what we do as a company is we give them as much visibility as we can. So we give them access to things like our primary announcements channel in Slack, which we usually limit. Oh, nice. We can use that. Yeah. We let them use that to announce their project and to try and get people uh, involved and interested. We will actually, as an HR team, we have a page in our primary documentation space where we list out these projects and invite people to participate. They get mentioned at onboarding for new people who are joining. So, and the last piece is as a company, we've actually thrown things like, you know, whoever win, who I think uh, for the step challenge, the top three winners uh, got uh, $50 to spend on Kinsta swag. So they could get like a hoodie 
and a mug or a t-shirt and a hat or whatever. Uh, so those are the things we've done to try and encourage those projects. Uh, now the challenge, uh, and this is, we're, we're getting up to a point where we only have one Kinsta culture project active right now. And so the next, the next hurdle for me to try and think through is, is how do we solicit additional ideas? And cause I'm sure we got 120 people, people have ideas. I'll give so you a great, we, a great tie in for it. And we did this back when we were, um, I was the CEO at 1-800-GOT-JUNK. We would mm -hmm. get all of our employees to write their bucket list and they had to commit to as close to 101 things that they wanted to do or try or see or learn or experience before they die. Nice. And then we shared the bucket list with everybody in their business area. So everybody yeah. in marketing saw everybody in marketing's bucket list. And all of a sudden we noticed like, wait, there's 12 of you that want to learn how to play guitar. Right. You know, there's 17 of you that want to parachute. So all of a sudden we just started organizing the people that wanted to do stuff. And we're like, why don't the 17 you guys that want to go parachute go jump? And we didn't yeah. have to pay for anything. We just like, right. because they didn't always know, right? Right. Exactly. That's exactly right. So that's been the big thing we have been trying to do with this is to give these projects visibility because somebody will have an idea, they'll mention it offhandedly and it'll die. Right. We've been just trying to give it a, a platform is perhaps a better way to say it. We're giving it a platform and telling them, honestly, it's, it's a legitimate way for them to converse with their uh, colleagues in a work setting. We're, we're, encouraging them to use That's the great. work, the shared work conversation spaces to, to have these conversations and to get these projects off the ground. We ended up with this bizarre running club that started one time where we, we hired this guy. So Vancouver has a sun run, which is 40, 49 or 50,000 people. It's, it's one of the top five, I think it's one of the top five largest 10 Ks in the world. Mm -hmm. And um, we hired this guy who'd come ninth in it one year. Oh, I mean, wow. How do you come ninth yeah, in a race of 50,000 people? I just follow the 30,000 people in front of me, right? Yeah, this guy <laughs> right. memorizes the course. So every day, this guy would like go out for his run. You know, every day mm -hmm. he's going out for another run, going out for another run. And all of a sudden, like he would get other people going for a run. And then sooner or later, mm -hmm. it, was, you know, it was like 18 people out of 200 going for a run every day. It was kind of cool. That's awesome. Yeah, that is, that is very cool. Yeah, that is very cool. So so what's on your um, your culture list? If you had a culture project you were going to start, what would it be? Oh, man. You know, I, I actually, you know, one of my personal OKRs, we, we break our OKRs into what we call periods, which are four months sections rather than quarters. But one of my OKRs for the period that we're in right now is to launch, or there, one of my key results is to launch a culture project. So I've been thinking about this question and I'm either going to do something around exercises and reading. And reading. Or, or, yeah, they're, they're the two things. So I, I, I have, um, I try to do exercise and reading every day, even if it's only for 10 minutes. Yeah. And so those are kind of the two ideas that I'm working on. I don't know exactly structure of the project, but I, I know that I have to launch one before September 30th to, to hit my key result. When we were just saying hi before we hopped on here as well, you said that during this whole COVID thing that we're kind of in the midst of right now, or hopefully emerging yeah. from slowly, um, you mentioned that, that physical fitness or exercise yeah. has been the core for you in the last few months. What have you been doing? Yeah. So I, I've been doing bodyweight exercises, bodyweight exercise workouts. My brother and I have used the same program for about a year and a half now. And, and we don't do them together, but what we do is we use an app. And after we complete a day's workout, we just shoot each other a short video chat. It's like, Hey, I did this, this workout. So I've done that for a long time, but what I've added just in the last two or three months, uh, I, a couple of different pieces actually. So one is I, I bought an exercise bike and I've been uh, trying to build more cardio uh, into my uh, cycle. The other thing that I've done is I bought a book called Run Less, Run Faster, which I, I've been a runner, but I have a history of knee problems. And so I wanted to read something that uh, would help me hopefully increase the um, 
how effectively I run, how fast I am, uh, without without continuing to hurt my knees. So totally. actually, that's that's what spurred me to start bodyweight exercises. Is I was doing running after years of being sedentary, and my core had lost all of its fitness, and and I you know was just is that is that running book an older book? Yeah, it's been around for. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know older. Uh, it's been around for probably ten years or so. Yeah, it's, I think it's not super recent. I think I read that about five years ago. I was yeah. training for a marathon, and I think oh, yeah? I was I was trying to migrate to more of a four foot runner and get my kind of sure. um, my pace up. And I read mm -hmm. that, yeah. and I started using an app to put music on that had a certain cadence. Yeah. Um, and that got my Kate. I also then realized I was listening to podcasts and that was sure. slowing me down. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like, yeah. Right. I'm like an hour into a Tim Ferriss podcast going, wait a second, what the hell happened to my pace here? Right. Why am I running 12 minute per mile pace yeah. all of a sudden? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sadly, my running career is over. I had, um, advanced osteoarthritis in my left hip and got my hip yeah. replaced three months mm -hmm. ago. So I'm no longer allowed to run, but at least right. I check, check my marathon box off. Which is right. Great. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah. So talk about, about um, your transition of going from engineering to COO. What was that like? Sure. Right. So I, I think um, the, the piece that surprises a lot of folks about that I spent seven years as a sales manager and earned my MBA in a prior career, <laughs> right? So I, I came to Kinsta with a very solid background in how business functions. Uh, in how sales operates and how customer support should work. Now, what happened is I was in that industry and I decided I wanted to work in technology. So I went through a process of self-education. Now, as far as transitioning from support engineer to COO, a, a big part of that really was uh, joining Kinsta at the right time with the right combination of uh, personality and, and skills that they happen to need, right? So I, my strategy at a couple of different points in my career has been to worry less about the job I was getting and more about the company I was going to work for. I was I was working as a uh, I was working as a freelance writer and as a freelance website builder in the WordPress space, and I kept seeing this company Kinsta pop up. And actually, they recruited me to do some writing for their blog, and so I was interacting with them a little bit. And I was just looking at the landscape, going, "This is a company that is that is taking off." And so I just started looking really for any opportunity to go to work for Kinsta. And the first role that came open that I was qualified for was a support engineer role. So I applied for that role. I actually didn't get it the first time. They had somebody else and there were some hour issues, but they had another role open up and they called me and, and said, would you like to be inter interviewed for this role? And, and I got the job that way. And then it really was a matter of having the skills that they were looking for and the personality and the temperament, good alignment with the founders at a time when they needed it. So this was a company that was based in Europe and I was based in the United States and they were seeing a large influx of US customers and they were going, we need to have a stronger uh, management focus on customer support coming out of the United States because that's where we're growing the fastest right now. Mm. And, and, and they saw that my philosophy for customer support, my philosophy for how I interacted with our customers, how support should function, closely aligned with what they were doing. And so they didn't have anybody managing support and they approached me and said, would you be open to managing support? And so I took that on. And at that time, when I say managing support, it was like me and two or three other people. So it was right. a very small team. And at the time we had one person who was doing sales and that person left the company. And uh, so I, I just stuck my hand up and I said, guys, I've done sales before, not in this industry, but I'm, I'm happy to help out while we figure out what the long-term plan is here. Because again, at this point, the company's still only, you know, 15 people. It's very much an all hands on deck. 
right. type of operation. And so I, I got into sales as well. And so pretty quickly they were like, you know what? We're just going to leave the sales function with you. You're doing a good job with it. So I became uh, head of sales and support. Uh, pretty shortly thereafter, uh, they handed me the client care function, which was effectively the non-technical customer service role. So I was already handling the technical portion with support. They handed me the non-technical portion. And I did that then for about a year. So I was handling all of our customer facing functions and our sales functions. Teams growing, we're expanding. Uh, and, and then we got to the point where our operation in Budapest and our global operations were too demanding for one person to completely manage day to day. And so they yep. said, let's, let's split these two things apart. Uh, one of the co-founders, Anita, you, you're going to become the manager, the general manager, in effect, of the operation there in Hungary. John, you're going to become the COO of the global organization. And so I retained all of the sales <laughs> and support, everything I was already doing, but I, I basically was handed responsibility for uh, finance, uh, tax, legal, uh, compliance, data privacy. Yeah. Um, well, you yeah, did, you did the classic kind of put up your hand and, and take that responsibility on and then you proved yourself. And then when all of a sudden you do that a couple of times, then it's like, well, shit, let's just keep giving it to the guy who keeps proving himself. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. You don't wait for somebody to notice you. And you had, as you said, you already had some of the, um, the experience and the theory behind you to be able to, mm. to make it work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, the thing is, I, I'm also a big, I think I'm realistic in that I recognize that a big part of my success at Kinsta was being the right person in the right place at the right time. Now, it, those all three factors have to come together. It has to be the right person, the right place, the right time. The only part of those three that I really contributed was, was the right person. Uh, yeah. place, place and time, it wasn't dumb luck. It would be a little bit too strong to say that was dumb luck. I did intentionally seek out Kinsta, but there was no guarantee that that was going to play out like it did. So, so I do always feel a degree of humility in my success there and recognizing that um, if somebody else had joined at that time and, and had brought the same skills, that may have been their path instead. Um, you know, I, I brought myself to the role, but to a certain degree, all of us are the product of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. For sure. Yeah, there's a bit of that as well. Talk about, you mentioned values a couple of times. Can you talk to us about how you kind of work to ensure that core values are deep, deeply ingrained sure. and, and lived in an organization? Yeah. So that's, that's actually a, a nut we're trying to crack right now. Um, so we, we have about a year and a half ago, we wrote something called the Kinsta ethos, which was a document that Mark, our CEO and myself, we dreamed up where we bas basically sat down and said, what are the principles that we want to see guide the company? We published it. It was well-received. It's covered at onboarding. We still like the document. However, we looked back uh, a couple of months ago and realized there were problems with it. One, it was internal only. It wasn't written such that it was designed to be outward facing. Uh, two, it was written by Mark and myself. Uh, and that's probably not the best way <laughs> to capture the values of an entire company. Uh, three, we didn't really have a plan for how we were going to use it. So uh, we're actually going through a vow, what we're calling a uh, process of discovering Kinsta's values. Uh, and, and it's going to look a little bit differently this time. Interesting. We can use it on our website. We can use it on LinkedIn. We can use it on Glassdoor. We can sprinkle it into Twitter. We can, we can use it both internally and externally to try and reinforce it uh, continuously. The second well, thing, go ahead. I, yeah, I like what you're saying is you're, you're trying to discover what your core values are versus somebody stating them and then trying to make people live them. If, if you do actually really understand the pulse of the organization, that's yeah. where the core values do emerge from. 
Exactly. And that's, that's the second, the second part is that we're not, the executive team isn't going to sit down and write them this time. Uh, Mark and I are going to have a call an all hands call later this month where we're going to talk about the project. We're going to pull in some other companies, value statements, our own ethos, just to get people thinking about the types of things. Then we're going to survey the company and we're going to get everybody's input into what do you guys view as being our core values or, or what should our core values be? What are the things we should aspire to? And, and then it's going to be built on that. Uh, is going to be built on the direct input of uh, our team. And then we have a couple of different ideas around how to reinforce them over time. So this is a little bit of a work in progress, but one of the things I think we're going to do is we're going to have some sort of a regular, probably monthly process where we go, all right, we want you all to nominate folks on our team who have done something that embodied Kinsta's values in some way. And so hopefully we'll get some nominations in and then we're going to do some sort of a swag giveaway, write up a blog post about them internally, talk about what it is that they did that embodied those values and then do that on a recurring basis so that there's, there's kind of this um, repeated coming back to what those values are, highlighting folks who are really doing a great job of embodying them and, uh, and making it, you know, something that's fun and something that folks look forward to. Yeah, you're right because you can just have a set of core values and put them on a wall but that doesn't really do anything. It is highlighting them, talking about them, reinforcing right. them. It's got to be that obsession around, yeah. um, you know, praising people on them and, and then hiring people who live them and firing people that don't. Right, right. And the way that we view the concept that we're working on is, is that if Kinsta is a train and it's running down a set of tracks, that set of tracks has two rails. One rail is going to be our OKRs. OKRs are going to tell us what we're working on. And the second rail is going to be our values. That's going to tell us who we are. And so those, those two things have to be in alignment with each other, which means that our values will inform how we form our OKRs, what our key results are, how we pursue them. Uh, and those two things will work in tandem as we try and move Kinsta into the future. Yeah, that's great. You're thinking about them in the right way, for sure, it feels like. The last question I've got related to kind of the operational side of the business is um, the OKRs. You said you really had to... Um, kind of socialize the idea of bringing OKRs into the organization because the CEO didn't really think that way. How, how did you do that? What did you do to convince them? And, and then how are you using OKRs now? Yeah. So the company, again, was founded by, you know, four founders. And for a long time, and I think this is true of a lot of small companies, you're, you're small enough. Everybody's talking to each other. Your founder or, or some of the founders have a really clear vision of where the company is going to go. And that works for a while. Uh, and I think what has become increasingly clear as we look is we, we get in Slack or any of our other systems where everybody is and we realize that some significant portion of the company, uh, myself, Mark, we've never talked to a lot of these folks. You know, we've, we, we're up to, you know, 120 plus folks and there's a lot of these folks that I've never had a one-on-one conversation with and so they don't necessarily know what the company's about. I don't know what they're about. We don't know which direction we're going. So that was kind of observation number one. Observation number two, we've done a couple of different uh, surveys. And one of the things that comes back almost in in any type of context is we want to have a clearer picture for what's happening in the company. We want to have a clearer picture for what the results have been and and where we're going. And so those, I I leaned on those two ideas as I tried to sell the concept. Uh, I became sold on the concept because uh, I listened to one of my colleagues, Nathan, who really sold me on the benefit they had brought where he had been before. And so that kind of caused me to, to look at them and read them. I, I knew we needed something. And that's what pointed me in the direction of OKRs was talking to Nathan. 
but then, but then those were the things that I, I leaned on. I said, look, you know, half the company we've never talked to and they don't, they don't know what we're about. And, and we can't get on a one-on-one call with everybody in the company once a week. That's not a solution. So we need some way of communicating. What is the company about? What is it that we're trying to pursue? Where are we going? We need some way of communicating that all the way from the top so that, you know, the new hire in support, the new hire in sales, the new hire in accounting can map what they're doing to what the company is trying to do. So that's, that's how I sold the idea. As far as what we're doing, OKRs are new to us. And so for this first period, we rolled out company level OKRs. We assigned departments with responsibility for each of the different key results. That's as far as we required OKRs to go during this first period. Now, now some departments wanted to adopt them. And so uh, I know marketing, for example, has some departmental OKRs. Uh, HR, uh, the department that I directly manage, they're doing some stuff with OKRs. But we're doing a very gradual process, and we also understand we have a lot to learn as we go. So we're, uh, we've deployed them at the company level. Departmental and individual has been optional this first go around. Smart. And as we go along, we're going we're gonna to deploy them to additional levels in the organization. And then the other thing that I do is I am talking about them to the point that everybody has heard as much as they can possibly hear and maybe more than they really want to about them. So, I mean, it's become a running joke, right? You talk to John, you're going to hear about OKRs, right? So I'm constantly talking about them. And and that really is for the purpose of making sure that everybody understands what, what the point is, how they're supposed to function. So I've been writing blog posts about it and I talk about it every time I get on an all hands meeting. Well, uh, just to kind of reinforce the idea. I love that you're socializing them from the top down and starting at the leadership team. I think too often companies try to roll out a system organization wide and that's why it fails. It's too much too soon. Yeah. But then yeah. secondly, you, you really kind of have taken to heart what Jim Collins in Good to Great talked about, which is it's only when your employees are making fun of you have your, right. idea, have your ideas started to stick and you really need to be that kind of monomaniac with a mission. So that's right, why it's right. kind of successful. Yeah. So John, last, last question. If you were to, um, to kind of go back to your 22 year old self, you know, you're graduating sure. college, getting ready to start off in your career. What advice would you give yourself back then that you know to be true now, but you didn't know back then? Yeah. So I would give myself, I think two pieces of advice and I don't know that these are going to be universally true, but, but I, I these are the things that I, I would have pursued. One is seek out technical skills. Uh, technical mm. skills will open doors for you when you are looking for that first job. Right. Uh, so you don't necessarily have to have a degree. A degree isn't really required in most technical roles these days, but the ability to perform in a technical role and to in some way demonstrate that you have those skills is, is really um, going to be something that opens up a lot of doors to somebody who's early in their career. The, the second thing uh, is that I would encourage myself not to be scared of sales. That sales is one of the best ways to get to know a company and, uh, and to get in the front door and to understand the mechanics of how a business operates. So, so those would be the two pieces of advice, I think, is don't be afraid to develop some technical skills and, uh, and don't be afraid of sales if you see the door open to move in. Yeah, the technical side is amazing for sure. People miss that. John Penland, the COO for Kinsta, thanks very much for sharing with us today on the Second Command podcast. Really appreciate the time and all the insights you gave us. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks, man. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to us on Himalaya for access to our premium content. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, 
visit coalliance.com.